0: Welcome to The Great Trials Podcast, where you get a behind-the-scenes look at America's greatest trials with the trial lawyers who tried
1: them. But a little surprise, you can just never predict this stuff. We subpoenaed the vet for a trial depot, and he shows up with the original old-school manila folder with the dog's records in it. And he sits down in my office, and we're about to start the deposition, and I say, "Uh, Doc, can I see your uh, folder? And on the outside of the folder, which had never been copied and sent to Ronnie or anybody, with two asterisks, it says, We'll bite. Please rise. Part of
2: now in session. All right. Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast. This is Steve Lowry along with Yvonne Godfrey. Yvonne, how are you doing this uh, very hot afternoon, at least for me?
3: Um, I'm good. It was really stormy here, but um, I lost power a couple times, but I've got it back just in time for the podcast. So very nice. Um, yeah, so everything's good.
2: Very good. Uh, we, very good.
3: Yeah, well, we've got we've got an exciting uh, show today, and we, this is the first time we recorded in a little bit. So um, I'm glad yes. we're all getting together.
2: Yes, absolutely. No, we've got a great show today and, and about, I think this is the first uh, dog bite case that we're going to be talking about on the podcast. So that always brings up interesting issues.
3: Yeah. And dog bite, especially in this case, is like such, can be such a misnomer, huh? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> we'll, we'll talk about that, but um, yeah. yeah. Um, well, so we'll dig into it. So uh, before we do, um, let's talk a little bit about our guests. We have two great guests with us today. Um, we've got Matt Cook and Ronnie Halsey. They tried this case um, earlier this year, just a few months ago. Um, so first, uh, let's tell y'all a little bit um, about our guests. So we've got Matt Cook. As I said, he is from Cook Law Group LLC in, in Gainesville, Georgia, but he handles cases just about everywhere. Um, you can look him and his firm up at cook-lawgroup.com. Uh, Matt's a, a terrific lawyer. He's, he's uh recovered over 225 million for his clients in just the past 10 years. Um, but he's also just a really great guy. Um, and uh, he, uh, one of the things about his bio that I think is really interesting is that um, he grew up working hard and uh, worked Um, in cotton mills and do another manual labor before um, going to law school, and that gave him a real appreciation for um, sort of the underdog. Um, He went to law school at Mercer and uh, got his bachelor's from Piedmont College. Um, As you'd expect, he's a member of all the usual organizations we throw out there, ABA, AJ, GTLA super lawyer since 2011 Um, he focuses on wrongful death personal injury trucking car accidents workplace um, and construction cases premises liability nursing home railroad accidents products liability Um, he's also an aviation uh, enthusiast himself and has his pilot's license and um, I've got two quotes that I want to read about Mm. uh, Matt first what um, what Uh, One of his co-counsel said, which is that you may not hear a lot of stories about Matt because he is not flashy and is such a team player. He gives credit to others, whether deserved or not. He finds gold long after others have quit digging, um, which I think is such a huge compliment. And then another compliment I consider it a compliment (laughs) (laughs) from defense counsel, actually in this case, who said to the jury in closing argument, that Matt Cook could sell ice to Eskimos. Um, So I feel like that should be on your website now, Matt, just like that should be the entry page, Matt Cook could sell ice to Eskimos. (laughs) Um, But anyway, Matt, thank you for joining us today.
1: I am glad to be here, and thank you for those nice words. And, you, know, wow. you guys do a great job. I'm happy to be invited.
2: No, we're well, glad well. to have you on. Little known fact about Matt, two extra facts about Matt is that, uh, that he and I, I think were the first chairs, co-chairs of the, uh. Uh, of the commercial transportation group or trucking group for GTLA. And so we had a lot of fun putting on seminars, doing uh, mock trials of trucking cases and uh, and watching lawyers try those cases. Uh, and then the other thing, I don't know if you noticed, Yvonne, but he graduated in 1999. So that means he was in law school with our law partner, Jeff Harris. And I'm sure, I'm not sure that was a good thing or a bad thing, Matt, but uh, no, I'm just kidding.
1: <laughs> hey, I- let me take- say <laughs> Jeff was number one in our class, and I was number two, and uh, <laughs> so I was always close on his heels, but behind. Yeah, that, me, so.
3: that's right. That's why I didn't bring it up, Steve. Aw- yeah, that's right. <laughs> hey, I didn't bring up the, the rank. That that was pure man.
2: <laughs> but there, there he goes, throwing out compliments to others.
3: <laughs> there, that's him. Uh- <laughs> Oh, well, uh, so let me also introduce uh, Ronnie Holsey. And and Ronnie tried this case um, with Matt. They they tried this case together. And Ronnie is at Smith Holsey Attorneys at Law. And you can look them up at smithholseylaw.com. And that's Smith, S-M-I-T-H, the H-U-L-S-E-Y, Law.com. And uh Ronnie, we've never met before today, but one of the things that I I think is really interesting is that you also graduated second in your class um, from Mercer School of Law. Um, And that you, um, your bio is telling me that uh, you really focused your education in insurance law. And I want to know what kind of um, masochism or what, what, (laughs) what drove you to do that?
0: (laughs) You know, it's hard to say, you know, I'm the first lawyer uh, in my family, uh, really the first person in my family to actually uh, graduate from uh, college or anything like that. But as soon as I I got there. I think some of the lawyers in Macon um, that I saw, they all practiced um insurance law. So Duke Gruber uh, and some of those guys down there, that's what they did. And, and that's such a, you know, when you're coming out of law school, that's what insurance defense or insurance in general um, is just one of the the, the main areas of, of law. And so um I like it because uh it's a it's a smaller body of law. And if you uh, if you pay a lot of time and attention to it, you can kind of kind of master it. And so. Um, not sure, sure how, how I got there, but now that I do that, I don't know that I'm fit to do anything else. and wouldn't want to do anything else.
2: Right. Yeah.
3: Well, that's great. Well, and obviously it served you well in this case and we'll, and we'll talk about that. But so, you know, Ronnie really learned how to, um, uh, kind of how, what makes these insurance companies tick and, and, um, you know, what they're afraid of and what, what helps them encourages them to pay fair compensation although we'll talk about how they kind of blew that opportunity in this case um but so uh that that's clearly served you well ronnie and and thank you for joining us to talk about your insight on on y'all trying this case as well um so i will give everybody a brief overview of the case and then i'll stop talking so we can really uh talk about what matt and ronnie and their team uh did in this case but as steve mentioned um this is the first dog bite case we've had on the show and, and dog bite, I feel like really is kind of a term that we use as lawyers for a category of cases, but doesn't really describe what happened in this case um, because it was really more of a, a, a mauling, more of an attack. And for those of you that have either handled this type of case or have had somebody in your family or personally um, where you've you've dealt with a, an attack from a dog, there is um the injuries can be particularly horrific, and uh, we'll talk about that. Um, but so this case was, uh, as I mentioned, the verdict came back in May 2023. Um, it's from Hull County Superior Court here in Georgia. And the facts or, or the incident arose in March 2022, um, and the, the events happened in Gainesville. Stacy Stacy Finelli, she was a 53 year old French teacher. Um, she had gotten some of her neighbors' mail by mistake, so she brought it over to their house to give it to them. And uh, her neighbors uh, were uh, Jean Stiehlough and her husband, uh, whose name I just lost, Thomas. Thomas. Thomas St- yeah, Thomas yeah. Um so when she came over, Jean was the only one uh, who was home, and she had invited Stacy inside to take a look at some recent, recent renovations they had done. But inside the house was a lab uh, pit mix named Bronson, um, who was owned by Jean and Thomas's son Randy, but uh, the dog lived at the house basically. Um, when Stacy came into the home, uh, the dog attacked her. Um, so, that's why I say it's a misnomer. It wasn't just a bite. If you've seen a dog play with hopefully just a toy, you've seen how they will grab on and shake. Um, and so the dog grabbed onto her, bit her, uh, shook its head, tearing her ar- her legs and arms open, biting her on her face, neck, arms, and legs. Stacy was hospitalized twice uh, for a total of about 20 days. Her medical bills were... Um, over three hundred and thirty six thousand dollars, the dog. And we'll talk about this, had had previously exhibited aggressive and attacking type behavior, although the defendants denied that um, in their pleadings in the case. And we'll talk a little bit about how they withheld vet records that really reflected that there was a history there. And. Um, looks like one of the main defenses in the case was going to be that the son who actually owned the dog uh, was not the person who had the assets, was not the person who owned the home uh, where all of this happened. And uh, the defense may have also been counting on the fact that uh, Hall County can be a tough venue. And we'll talk a little bit about that. That's where the case was. And so they turned down a $1.4 million offer of settlement. And uh, we'll talk more about what that means. But uh, that in the short term, that met, meant that uh, Matt and Ronnie tried the case and the jury deliberated for just about an hour and 45 minutes and came back with a $5.6 million verdict for Stacy, and a little over $20,000 for her husband, Anthony, for loss of consortium. He was her caregiver. And then uh, they, for the fault, they allocated 75% to uh, Thomas, the, the husband, who was not home at the time of the attack, but was really responsible for caring for the dog uh, when it was in the home, and then 25% to Jean. Uh, the jury also awarded $50,000 in attorney's fees in a separate phase um, after electing that those were warranted um, in part due to that failure to uh, take that pre-offer, uh, that uh uh what am i talking about pretrial offer so it is the largest verdict in history on a, a dog bite case in hall in uh, hall county and a tremendous verdict no matter where you're trying the case um so such a great verdict i have so many questions i want to ask you guys but but first i want to back up especially for folks outside of georgia that listen to the show and just talk a little bit about um where you were trying this case um and i know matt that that was some of the comments that you had made after this case was that it was about getting verdicts in venues like this so can you can you speak to that a little bit
1: yeah so you know i grew up in ravern county which is uh northeast part of the state the appalachian Foothills, and that's why I'm blessed with this accent. So I can't ever prank call anybody after I've talked to them once. (laughs) Um, So, you know, we all know how important our venue is. And uh, I've tried several cases outside of urban areas. And, you know, the defense is always threatening. You won't get a good verdict there. People are conservative there. But as my wife says, the best medicine for tort reformers or conservative jurors is a good case if you've got a good case, people listen. And uh, Ronnie uh, grew up here in Hall County. And um, this actually, it was the largest dog bite verdict here, but it was the second largest contested liability verdict here. So there really have not been any significant verdicts in Hall County. So the venue was an issue. It was a consideration. And of course, we had other challenges in the case. But you know, trials are just all about credibility. And credibility, you you demonstrate that by your character, your demeanor, but also by your preparation, being the expert in the case, never uh doing anything that even smells like a lie. Because at the end of the day, they're just truth telling contests and the jury's got to pick. And that sells anywhere in the country. The truth right. always sells. You know and so that's where we were and that's how we
2: approached
3: it so go ahead steve
2: well i was just going to say i I mean i i I haven't not tried near as many in rural counties as uh as matt has and and maybe not as ronnie but the few i've done i mean the types of themes that seem to work in in those counties is just things things that make you know people good solid people but it's personal responsibility uh, you know, it, um, taking, you know, credibility, things like that are are the things that uh, really get to the heart of the issue. Um, and, you know, if, if that's what the case is about, and it sounds like the defense in this case made some mistakes in those areas, um, you know, that the juries, uh, especially uh, in, in those rural counties will do the um, will do the right thing and and um, and you know, hold a, uh, a defendant responsible when they um, when they need to. Um, how 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 is your experience with theming and things like that, uh, Ronnie or Matt?
0: Yeah, I think you know Matt hit the the nail on the head with just always being truthful. And one of the things that we made, you know, Matt did a good job of this, is not trying to oversell anything because I think juries really pick up that. Particularly, if they're already in more conservative venue. You think they're going to be more skeptical as it is, but when you've got a great client and we had great, great clients, and unfortunately the uh, the husband passed away just a few weeks after we got the verdict, but we had a great client, great people, uh, did not oversell it. And then unfortunately for, for the client, there was just the, the injuries were very severe and a, a point that Matt brought out, you know, I think a lot of attorneys, when they've got a good case like that, they've got really bad pictures and bad injuries. They try to oversell it and really, you know, Shove it down the, the, the jury's throat, but Matt was very tactful in, you know, laying out a plan that said, look, we're going to show it. But then the jury really appreciated the fact that we moved the case along as quickly as we could. There were some things that defense attorneys did that really, I think, kind of aggravated the jury. They drug it out, but, uh, you know, we didn't oversell things and didn't try to, you know, show them the same picture 500 different ways. The, the, the injuries were very... Uh, very severe and so they they didn't need to see it but a couple of times and they got the point Matt was keen on picking that up too and so I think that worked very well they just they didn't feel like they were ever oversold.
3: I'm, I'm glad you said what you did about moving things quickly because I just have a quick total aside which is I had to double check these dates a couple times in terms of when this all happened and when y'all got to try this case and I'm wondering how you pulled that off <laughs> is that just do they just not have a busy as busy of a i shouldn't say it's busy of a docket but um maybe it's packed of a cal- calendar in hall county because this happened what march 2022 right and you tried it in may 2023 i want to know your secret
1: <laughs> yeah well i'll tell you that's one of the things that ronnie does really well uh he filed this case very shortly within a week i think of the attack and he pressed the case you know we were talking the whole time i didn't officially enter the case until about four weeks before trial but we'd been talking about it you know and he got all the depositions done you know everything in place and when it came up on a calendar we called there was like 10 cases in front of us all of them much older and uh, we called down to the clerk as you do and that got the list and called the lawyers, and everybody was continuing or settling or moving their case. And uh, we found out we were number one. So it was just game on. Um, and our judge, to her credit, she uh, did both plaintiffs and defense work. You know, not every judge is experienced in civil work. She was. And uh, she put us on a calendar and held us to it. So.
2: Did, awesome. did you get much pushback from the defense on, uh, on trying it? I mean, that's usually a problem that i that I'll run into is we'll say we're ready. And then the defense will come up with how they're on, you know, 12 other calendars and they're just too busy and they're, you know, uh, they'll see when they can get around to it. And so you always, you know, have to convince the judge to get, get everybody on the calendar at the same time. Yeah,
1: they did fight us on that and, uh, they, they got about a three-week extension, but it was critical. It was critical that we got our trial when we did. The defense fell asleep in this case. And y'all are familiar with the 120-day rule of apportioning fault to non-parties, Right. So what happened was, discovery closed. We were on a trial calendar that was only about 60 days out. And so they hadn't filed a notice of intent. So they were fighting tooth and nail to get that extension And the court said, sorry, I've extended discovery once, you know, and and that was a huge boon to us because the jury wanted to unload on the son who owned the dog, had a lot of notice of its problems and that sort of thing. But couldn't.
3: yeah, yeah, that was huge. So I mentioned that earlier, that 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 was going to be one of the big defenses in the case and sounds like still one of the things that they argued a lot. But in. In Georgia, that notice, that one hundred day, one hundred and twenty day notice that Matt's talking about for those outside of Georgia, is you've got to file, you know, something written that says you're going to allo- try to allocate fault to non parties to the case and who they are. And so they had never done that, um, and so they weren't able to get the son listed on the verdict form. And so they could make arguments about it, but he wasn't actually listed there for a percentage, which was probably huge.
2: Well, um, let me ask uh, Ronnie a question about that because so uh, I know that the the um, uh, statute that controls this case uh, talks in terms of homeowners. It, is there is that the reason you decided not to uh, name the son as a defendant in the case uh, because they he was not the homeowner?
0: Uh, no, mainly primarily because he just didn't have any assets. Right. So we were afraid, you know, if we named him, you know, the, it would have come back ninety five on him and maybe two and a half for the other one. So I was going to put the ball in their court and if they wanted to try to portion it, I was, I was going to leave that up to them. And fortunately, like Matt said, they just
1: kind of fell asleep and dropped the ball on that. Yeah. And you know, the way we dealt with that, you know, trying these cases is it's about, as you said, Steve, shared values and common beliefs, you know, are you presenting something that seems to make sense? And You know, in this country, we got school shootings going on all the time. We got people that are doing things they shouldn't be doing. And we got people letting things go on under their roof that shouldn't be going on. So one of the themes was this. The 40-year-old son who owned the dog had moved in with his adult parents uh, and brought the dog with him. And the parents knew the dog had some issues. And yet they didn't do anything about that. And so one of the themes or one of the things we argue to the jury is, look, when you own a home, no matter how much you love your children, no matter how old they are, you've got a right to say no. If there's something going on under your household, under your roof, you got a right to say no. Sorry, son, you can't have the dog here. It's too dangerous. You can't have a gun if you have problems not only do you have a right, you got a duty because you live in a world where you have to share it with everybody else. And if you know something dangerous is going on, you got a duty to do something about it. And that, you know, the jury appreciated that and understood that fundamental point.
2: Yeah.
3: Let's dig into that a little bit too, because I know one of the things that, that you was on your radar to have to deal with was the fact that the, um, The husband, Thomas, had passed away by the time you were trying the case. So you had Jean, who was a widow at that point. Um, And so I know one of the things that was on your radar was, were people going to have sympathy for her basically being, was their perception going to be that she was put in this situation, that it wasn't her fault? Talk a little bit about how you dealt with that.
2: Well, and just to add to that before you answer is that she was also 73 years old. So it's not like, uh, you know, I mean, you know, 73 year old widow, uh, coming in there and, and then, you know, asking the jury to hold her responsible. That's not an easy task. So yeah, definitely talk about that. Ronnie and I spent
1: a lot of time talking about it before the trial and, uh, you know, it's really just being humane, just being genuine. Don't try to be somebody else. I mean, I couldn't be somebody else, you know, <laughs> if I tried. But, but don't go and try to emulate. You know, my former partner Jim Butler's a great trial lawyer, but he does things different than I do. I learned so much from him, but I don't try to pretend to be him. I'm just me. And um, so, what we told the jury in opening was this. Uh, it's unfortunate that she's lost her husband and she's a widow and, uh, we know she didn't intend to hurt anybody. Uh, we're going to be fair with her. We're not going to take any cheap shots. We're not going to take anything out of context. She can explain anything she wants, but she's going to have to answer tough questions. And there was a point when I was cross examiner that she was crying. You know, you don't, you don't charge headlong at somebody like that. But you just have to, you know, start with things like, you know, ma'am, are you willing to accept any responsibility whatsoever? The answer is no. Well, you knew that the dog had gone after two of your friends. Well, you know, now that that's what I said to the cop, but that's not what I'm saying now. So you start to peel back the layers and see if they're going to be genuine with the jury like you are. And that's how we handled it, you know. It's just just a very frank conversation, but no cheap shots, no, you know, if she misspoke and it was obvious, I didn't try to jump on her and say, well, you know, aha, you've admitted this. I just don't do it that way. Ronnie can speak to it because he, he spent a lot of time thinking about it, uh, strategizing with us. Well, I have to say one thing. Matt's wrong on the can't emulate somebody because I'm
0: trying to copy him about every, <laughs> every, every day. Uh, and so, uh, but no, yeah. And the other thing that we did is like like Matt was saying, it, it's very gentle with her and, and did a very had a very devastating crossover. But we kind of showed how she wasn't really the the victim. The real victim in the room was our client uh, because we did we pointed out how the defendant had done and taken steps to to try to get the case thrown out for instance one of the things that the defendant had done was they went and got an affidavit from one of the dog bite uh, prior victims and she was uh, mentally just not really capable of giving an affidavit through her deposition that became clear and the way they were you know they didn't produce another uh, victim that, that was bit by the the dog they had hidden some documents and things of that nature so while Matt didn't rough her up too much, he was very clear in pointing out she has taken affirmative steps throughout this litigation that if her tricks and things had worked, you know, it would have thrown our client out, out of court and it would have been a much different case. So the jury picked up on that. So I think we did a good enough job of doing that, that it removed any sympathy they would have had, the fact that she was a widow.
2: Well, one question. uh the husband who had passed away had he been deposed during the discovery period?
0: No, I tried, you know, I was getting his deposition and at that time he was uh, had been diagnosed with cancer and wasn't able to do it. And then so they had to cancel the one of the dates. And then by the time we, you know, came back around a couple of weeks later, he had unfortunately passed away. So I never I never got to depose him.
3: How did you end up finding out about the the issue with the the vet records and that they had basically only given you part of them.
0: Yeah, go ahead, Rob. Okay, so what had happened is they produced two pages of records uh, during discovery, but something that we always do is we don't ever take anybody's word for it. So we've gone behind and also sent out third-party requests to all these facilities to, to double-check. And Matt um, doesn't ever miss anything in a case. And so early on, we were, he was going through and uh, made the connection that they had not produced that full that full set of records, and the way he, you know did not disclose it. And think something that that I've learned, you know, I've always said Matt and I we do a lot of work together because I think if you're uh, if you're the best trial lawyer in the room, you're in the wrong room. And so I'm always uh, anytime I can partner up with Matt, uh, I can always learn something. And so what he did, rather than hauling off and filing. Uh, motions to compel or motions for sanctions and and things of that nature. He discovered that abuse and held it back and then sprung it on him at the right time in trial when he had the son uh, on the stand and actually you know got him to admit he had gone and gotten the forty pages of records had produced them to opposing counsel and they were supposed to give them to us and things of that nature. So Whoa. first time they they figured out they were caught There
2: was twelve other.
3: Um, wait, did I lose y'all? Can you hear me? We
2: we, we can hear we can hear uh, Vine. All right. So, um, hopefully she'll, uh, hopefully she'll get back on. So I, so that, that's a question I had. So, um, so they actually had the records in their possession and had not turned them over to you and you got them through a non-party request to produce. That's correct. Okay.
1: Yeah. And what we did, you know, uh, we got both the truth and the lie, which is the best, right. uh, of both worlds and, going back to trials being credibility, you know, but a lot of people get gifts handed to them in cases and they don't know what to do with them. You know, you catch the car, what are you going to do with it now? And, you know, I haven't done it for so many years, you've got to weigh what's going on in the case. And so you can run to the court, file a motion for sanctions, but what happens many, many, many times, you've probably been in this position, Steve, you catch them red handed, you tell them you've called them, you tell the court, and ultimately the court either says no sanctions or applies no sanctions or applies a light sanction. And then there's a motion in limine down the road that says, hey, judge, that's discovery. We don't need to be talking about that at trial. You dealt with that. You considered it. You handled it. And that's all it is. You know, and you have really... Lost your opportunity when you do that. And in some cases, I, you know, I do file most of your sanctions ahead of time. But, you know, you're standing there and we didn't know the full story. We knew that he had gotten the records. You know, we needed to prove that he had sent them to the lawyers because he wasn't represented. So I remember showing him the 40 pages of records, and he had used another email address. But he admitted that, you know, and everybody on our side knows what's coming, but I'm trying to sneak up on him and put him in a corner and see what he'll say. And it's about a three- or four-minute cross before you get the foundation laid, and you've got them. And then, you know, you, we ask him, well, why is it we only got two pages? And don't you think it looks pretty bad for your mom in a case where a lady's been attacked? that they held back 40 records and these 40 records show that five out of the six times he went to the vet, they were complaining about him being aggressive. And then, you know, the courtroom, you know, blows up and, and it's ugly for
2: him. So I, I did want to ask about those vet records. So the five out of the six times, uh, the, the veterinarian or the, or the records the staff there had noted that the dog was, uh, aggressive, uh, w- when he, when he, it came in,
1: yeah. Every time it went, they had to muzzle it. Uh, had to um, you know warn the son, saying this dog needs to be neutered. It needs uh, to be evaluated by a uh, behavior specialist, etc. But a little surprise—you can just never predict this stuff. We subpoenaed the vet for a trial depot, and he shows up with the original old school Manila folder with the dog's records in it. And he sits down in my office, and we're about to start the deposition. And I say, uh, Doc, can I see your uh, folder? And on the outside of the folder, which had never been copied and sent to Ronnie or anybody, with two asterisks, it says, Will bite."
3: So <laughs> the, oh my God.
2: You know, that, that is a, that is a practice pointer for lawyers uh, because I've had that happen several times to me where you show up and you get the actual file that they keep it in and they write a lot of stuff inside that file or on the cover of it. And a lot of times that does not get copied when they uh, give you your, you know, quote unquote certified records.
1: I had a friend, uh, as an aside, he said, uh, he went to the doctor with his wife one time and they had written on her folder, difficult patient.
3: <laughs> um, was there any, I noticed in, um, it might've been one of the articles about the verdict after the case that they, that some of it was about what the defendants knew about the dog's history uh, with people and being aggressive. But some of it was about maybe what was known by the neighborhood or what was known by um, Stacy and her husband. Was there any kind of, Attempt to blame Stacy at all at trial for for having knowledge or having heard that this dog might be aggressive.
1: Ronnie, you speak to that? Yeah,
0: they they tried uh, a couple different things. You know, they brought in a local uh, attorney that she's a divorce attorney, um, so it didn't make a whole lot of sense why they brought her in. But uh, she kind of went after Stacy. Actually, wanted to try to make out a case like she was a trespasser. And uh, deliver in the mail, and so actually brought it up in Bordire and said, you know, does anybody here? Don't you think you ought to have to call before you go do this and that? And everybody's kind of looking back at each other, like, what's this lady talking? About? What do you mean, call? If I got mail. I'm just going to bring it over there to you. So, and um, it was funny, Matt. He picked up on that uh, in the Bordire, and so in the closing, he said, you know, they're going to ask, they're going to put a charge in here about a trespasser, and so you know that kind of rubbed the jury the wrong way, and then also there was some information that you know the husband of stacy's husband had had an interaction with the dog and and the uh tom Steisloff, who that he passed away had yelled and told him the dog was was dangerous and things of that nature and so they tried to make that mountain out of a molehill sample well, didn't you just run right in your house and tell your wife there's a dangerous dog out there this and that and that. So. Uh, so, they did try to do that a, a few times but
2: um it, wait, not, it, I, i'm sorry and, and i i just remember reading this from the consolidated free trial order but in their statement about the case they ca- they say that gene invited the plaintiff in so then they turned around at trial and called her a trespasser
0: yeah saying that you know what she, <laughs> why was she walking over there coming down you know the the road there and it's just that was the thing is that these the defense attorneys tried to take some shots that you just ought not try to take. And for instance, you know the defendant's or the, the plaintiff's daughter who came over there to her, put her in a turn, get things of that nature. On cross, they just they went after this daughter and really tried to impeach them. And really, all you needed to do was say, "Hey, you're brave. I hate this happened to you," and sit down. But they they did things like you know like that throughout. Or the defense attorneys were too wed to their cross-examination outline. And so when they would ask something and our client answered it truthfully, they had a follow-up question, you know, that they, it, you can't really ask him. They, they asked, is the sky blue? And Stacey said, yes, it's blue. And they try to go through and pick nit-pick records. And Matt and I knew the records well enough, so we just stood back up and said, well, isn't this exactly what you said, Stacy?" Yeah. And the jury's picking up on that. And so they were trying, they tried too hard to discredit a lady that you just couldn't discredit. That was just not the way to try that case. It was not a case where they came in and said, we're awfully sorry that this happened and we feel really bad about it. They did not do that.
2: Wow. That, I mean, that that's, that's interesting because it, again, reading that pre their statement in the pre-trial, they made it sound like they, they understood that this was a terrible attack and it was vicious, you know, but uh, but they had no knowledge of it. So yeah, that's uh, it, so whoever wrote their uh, pre-trial order, I guess uh, didn't get the memo on how they're going to try the case. <laughs> that's right.
3: Is there so this might be a stupid question. I've never worked on a, a dog bite case before. Is there any like attempt by them to like play off like sympathy for the dog or like sympathy oh, yeah. for from people who are animal lovers?
1: Yeah, very much, um, you know, and they wanted to call the dog Bronson. I never referred to anybody's name, you know, mm-hmm. as a dog. And they said, oh, you know, he would just jump on people. I'm trying this case. One of the people on our jury is an Iraq veteran who's a dog trainer, you know. And I said, you know, the dog jumps on you, he's 70 pounds, he's six years old, he's a pit bull, and you can't break him from jumping on you? I mean, you don't need to be handling a dog like this if you can't even teach it to not jump up on people. Yeah, you know and, and that so we're you know this isn't a cake this isn't an animal this pit bull that you can sit down with it and hold its paws and look deeply into its eyes and say what's bothering you little bronson why is it you like to chew people <laughs> yeah. up you know? And, right, right. you know what is it about the face the blood you love so much can we you know do some yoga or something <laughs> these are dangerous animals yeah. uh, And one of the things, one of the big political footballs that we had in our case was uh, pit bulls. And there are such strong opinions about those. And Ronnie and I talked about it before trial. We said, we're not going to attack pit bulls. I'm not going to get in a political fight because, you know, some people love them. They're the sweetest thing ever. We're not going to go in and say all of them are bad. We're just going to say some of them can be really bad. And you got to figure out early on, do I have a, you know, a teddy bear or a killer and it's responsible dog ownership. Just all these themes that are out there. You know, we're talking to a conservative jury, all of them believe in the right to own guns, but they also believe that idiots shouldn't have them. Right. And, and that's what the theme was.
2: Well, it, it seems like, I'm just wondering, it was the, uh, the veteran who was the uh, dog trainer. Did that end up being your form for person on the jury? Cause it seems like he he might, you know, I, 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 uh, my brother-in-law is a, is a dog trainer. So he has very strong opinions when dogs act out. <laughs> mm-hmm. No, he was
1: not. We ended up with a young lady on our, uh, as our foreman, we were surprised. We thought he would be, but that was our prediction. Yeah.
2: Well, uh, um, I, I am curious to hear how, uh, the defendant, I, I mean, I guess I want to hear both sides of it. And I think we you've already talked about it a little bit from your own client. Uh, but how uh, Miss um, or uh, now I'm going to mess up her name because you told me before uh, Sticeloff, right? So Sticeloff. Mm-hmm. How Miss Stysloff did um, on the stand because it, it, you know I did read some of the area where I, I think when the attack first happened she she did she tried to stop it and got knocked to the floor too maybe uh, and then uh, and then went and got nine one one so I could see her being a sympathetic. A witness on the stand I mean how how did she come across
1: I think sympathetic at first I mean we talked about um, you know how hard one of the worst things in life that can happen to you is being lonely. Loneliness is one of the worst things that can happen to you and she was crying you know I said yes ma'am that's a horrible thing I wouldn't wish that on anybody but just as we started to lay the foundation you know you told the officer this, You know, she admitted that he had gone after two people and then he had bitten one of her friends. And then we get in the deposition. She says, no, no, that's wrong. Of course we had it on body cam. Then ultimately we get down to trial for the first time and her mother, who's 101 years old, passes away. So she seeks a continuance of the trial. We consented to that, but for a few weeks, well, on the Friday, <clears throat> when she was supposed to be in North Carolina dealing with her mother's affairs, she was sitting in the living room of a lady that she had told Ronnie had dementia. She was sitting in her living room with the law firm investigator getting an affidavit that when they took her deposition proved to be absolutely false. The, old, the older lady testified, yeah, he bit me. I had to go to the hospital, et cetera. And, you know, it was clear they had misled her. So she was out actively working. And then, you know, the 40 pages of records, you don't just accidentally not get those. Right. And so it was just she just lost credibility one step at a time. And the cross was so important in all of their witnesses, I thought. But.
3: Yeah. How did this how did the son come across?
1: Ronnie, what do you say?
0: Yeah, so uh, you know, he got uh, you know when it came out with the the record, he would come off a little, uh, I would say a little meek and mild. But then there was during his deposition, you know, throughout the course, we'd asked him, you know, do you would you would you if you had to euthanize the dog? You know, he admitted I wouldn't have put the dog down, but for the litigation and. Uh, had I not had to put the dog down, I would have still let it to be a, around children and I wouldn't have had any problem with that. And when he was on the stand, um, he said, you know, something to the effect of he'll always be my Bronson and, and things of that nature. So still just, he, you know, almost made it to, um, uh, you know, put the dog on the, on the same level as a human, and made it more like he was a, a victim that his dog got put down, and really showed the jury that these people just did not get it—that they mishandled this dog, and they were still unwilling to admit, "Look, we—we we should have known. We made a mistake and let this happen to Stacy." The son was saying, "You know, I, I wouldn't have put him down before the litigation. Yeah, I let him be around all your kids, right? Mm, you know, he yeah. after it did what it did, and so he just—he just couldn't get through his through his head. I mean, and, yeah." I think wow, that blamed the jury and made them uh, pretty, pretty upset.
2: At I mean, that had to be incredibly effective for bringing it home to the jury about what the danger was there. So, um, yeah, these people just weren't going to pay it. no matter what
0: had the dog had done, they were never going to do anything about it Yeah, until it did something yeah. like
2: I do have just one question. Cause I noticed that at one point it looked like you had punitive damages in there. Was there uh, did you dismiss that or did that, uh, what happened with the punitive damages, I guess. We just
1: withdrew it. We, um, it didn't affect our evidence. Uh, we had our prior instance, which was part of our case in chief to prove, you know, notice of a dangerous dog and we didn't want to pile on, you know, but I, I will say, you know, just, you know, I've practiced a long time, 20 something years, and you think about human behavior and what drives people. And there was a ton of sympathy in this case, but, I just don't think that motivates people like being angry and we didn't do anything to make them angry, but the things the defense did made them angry, you know, and just the psychology of getting up and, you know, asserting your dominance as a juror when somebody's done something bad and you can get up and lash out, uh, your status in the tribe goes up. They're like, Hey man, don't mess with that person. I mean, they might, you know, hit you. But if if you try to get them there with sympathy, they might be suckered. The guy who bums a dollar off of you Mm -hmm. and he goes and buys a beer, you know, you're you're a chump, you know, or some people feel that way. For me, I don't care. But, you know, a lot of people don't like to be suckered. So that's why there's a uh, I think that's why anger is much more motivating than sympathy, in my opinion. No, I agree.
2: I agree.
3: Um, well, so, uh, you know, in terms of damages, and I guess we haven't really talked about this that much, but, um, you know, Stacy. so, you know, she survived the attack. Sounds like I didn't realize that she had lost, or well, I guess at the time of trial, she hadn't lost her husband. She lost him, I guess, shortly after the trial. Um, but she was very active before this case had run, I think, marathons um, and was very fit. And at the time you were trying, the case was still really struggling was not remotely uh in the same universe where she was in terms of physical activity before the accident. Um, but talk a little bit what you did um with her uh during the trial. Did you have her there the whole time? How was she physically doing at that point? That kind of thing.
1: Yeah, Ronnie handled her and the plastic surgeon and all of him talk. They did a really fantastic job though. Of oh, just being matter of fact, but I'll let him talk about that.
0: Yep. So we, you know, we didn't. We had her there at, at trial the entire time. Um, during when we were had her on direct, we did get her to come off of the stand and come in front of the jury, stand in front of the jury, show them everything that was going on because she had a little over three hundred thousand in medical bills. But the dog when it, it bit her, um, her left arm, it, it got her all the way down to the median nerve. It exposed that median nerve there in the muscle belly and she lost a couple of units of blood it, it got her on the right arm as well but one of the uh, more devastating injuries is it, it got her on the achilles tendon and so her achilles tendon was open air for about four months after the attack they could ever even put a skin graft on it and so the achilles tendon had some necrosis going on so they had to go in there and remove some pieces of the achilles tendon she had to do the wound backs so, you know you're sitting at home with a wound back you can smell your ankle riding, things that that going on. And so we were very upfront about that. And so she had she was running multiple miles a week, but up until at the time of trial she couldn't get on a treadmill for uh, constantly for more than a few minutes at a time. And that's the other thing and, and this is just, again, we didn't oversell it and but the defense likewise tried to oversell things. So for instance, there was a neighbor that had taken a little video uh, of Stacy, out walking on the subdivision and she was just walking which we never had her act like she couldn't walk she never did that she had on tennis shoes that she would only wear for 20-30 minutes at a time a neighbor literally took a 10 second clip of her walking down the road and they tried to act like this was going to be some gotcha moment uh matt deposed that lady and she said i'm just trying to help the defendant out you know that's what i'm trying to do and they actually got up there took, took the jury's time to depose that lady uh, they, You know, they took 20 minutes with her, showed this video, and it was a, the biggest nothing burger you've ever seen. Yeah. And it was one thing after another like that. And then um, trying to say, that like, you know, hey, you're running on a treadmill now, aren't you? Well, that, that was actually a note where they on therapy. They would put her on a treadmill. She wasn't at home running on a treadmill, and so we called them out for that. Um, but as far as the damages go, yeah, she will she'll have to that. Yeah, there, there's tethering, so where the scar tissue is healing, because uh, the layers that, i mean it literally tore up under her her arm i mean you could have put your whole hand under there and um, i mean it was down to the bone she had a there was a piece that was taken off of her uh off of her leg bone there that you could pick up on the x-ray where the, the dog had bit her on the leg and um so just really really bad injuries but when she flexed you could see that achilles tendon still because the skin graft is just not doesn't do a great job. So she got in front of the jury and was able to flex the ankle, show them what she had. And uh, we think that was effective. You know, during Matt's closing, he got up and showed them, you know, from the loss of blood, we were able to take the hemoglobin from her prior physicals and show what her average hemoglobin level was, versus take the hemoglobin uh, when she was in the in the hospital for the several, several days after the accident, Matt did the calculations, figured out, you know, just when you hear a couple of units of blood, it doesn't really resonate with you. He actually got you know a big bucket, took them out of water that was the same amount of water, and sit there and, and poured the the water into the the bucket and showed people you know how much that really how much blood that is you know because everybody knows it doesn't take a lot of blood to look like a lot of blood, but when you start talking about several units and enough to drop your hemoglobin levels, mm-hmm. uh, it's just it shows that this was something that could have very easily went from an attack to a death. But she's lucky to be alive.
2: Yeah.
3: Yeah. Did y'all end up, sorry, go ahead, Steve.
2: No, I was just going to ask with the medical bills, um, you know, we've had a lot of discussion on this show and, and, and lawyers talk about it and we go back and forth on it, depending on the case. Did you decide to put the medical bills into evidence? Um, And and then I guess, you know, how did you, uh, how did you use those? We put them
1: in just very low key. I just said, is this, you know, I had a bill summary. Are these your medical bills? Yes. And that's it. And then in closing, I just mentioned them. We didn't go into it. And I was on the fence about, it was $330,000. Both her and her husband worked for the school system. We had one or two teachers on our jury and County employees. So we figured that they knew, you know, but so the one comment I made was these are the medical bills Put the responsibility for these where they belong, not on, not on anyone in the world except the person they belong with. So that combats the whole argument of you're going to raise our health insurance, you're going to raise our taxes, or you know, if they happen to know about subrogation, you know, they may say, but you know, we just said put it where it belongs, put that burden on the defense.
3: Y'all talk about. I cannot imagine surviving something like this and not having PTSD or some form of major mental impact. And I'm wondering um, whether that was something that y'all talked about at trial. I mean, to the extent you can talk about it, I guess, whether that was something you talked about at trial and if so, how you, how you went about that.
1: Yeah, we put it in, there was a PTSD screening in the trauma uh, surgeon's records and we made those points. And at that point, though, she'd only been to counselor once or twice. And, uh, you know, she'd had several surgeries and she's got two to go. And she said, I haven't really been able to even go down that path. I'm, I'm working on the mechanical stuff. And, yeah. and so, so silly, so cruel, really. When they cross-examined her husband, they wanted to talk about sexual relations. And he did everything he could not to talk about that you know, and, you know, in closing, we said, you know, they're upset. They're perverts. They're obsessed with sex. That's all they can talk about. This case isn't about sex. It's about a 30 year marriage. Yeah. You know, this is about having to change your wife's diaper. Essentially. It's yeah. not about that. They're, they are obsessed with things that, you know, shouldn't be talked about.
2: So Ronnie, that, that brings up something I thought I saw you, you may have mentioned, did the, the husband, I take it, he didn't take that questioning very well. And did he get into a little bit of uh issue with the, with the court?
0: Yeah. He, so yeah. So the, uh, the local defense attorney, that's uh that's a divorce attorney, you know, I think that's the world they live in all the time is just a, a bunch of yelling and trying to get people upset. So she just kept on, kept on at him so that he, he ended up, you know, getting called down by the court a couple of times, things of that nature. Judge Oliver did a a great job of trying. You know, She wasn't too awful heavy-handed with him, but finally he did get under her skin. But we were able to play this off, and I think it came across as a jury, like, have this been a routine car wreck case and someone gets mad? But this was really a man that, uh, you know, his wife for 30 years is nearly killed by a dog. And then you've got this defense attorney that's very brash up here on him, nibbling away at him, picking at him, asking about a bunch of stuff they ought not be asking. So really we played it as that's just a a husband that loves his wife that ought not be here. That's taken up for his wife. And he was not, he's willing to take on the judge and everybody else. I mean, this is a man that's backed into a corner and uh, he was just doing like any other husband would do. He's upset about it. And he's not trained, he's not trained to hide it and he ain't trained to pull it out of people like the uh, other attorney is. And so, um, we were worried about how it went that day, but the next day we came in and that's when, um, I think Matt, you had, uh, I mean, maybe Matt's crosses were the next day. And it's just, the the wind was right back at ourselves right again. So it it never really impacted anything.
3: Yeah. Did you get a sense of, um, the, the award, I read it out in the beginning, but the award for loss of consortium was, uh was not a round number it was twenty thousand one hundred fifty nine dollars and ninety nine cents did you ever find out what that was about
0: i think they just tried to add up because he was also a teacher and had missed a certain amount of work i think they tried to figure out like what's his annual salary versus how much time they essentially try to give him his missed time from work i think is what they tried to do
3: Uh, i see yeah
0: okay something like that i think they
3: um, what else did you do with them in terms of, I mean, this is really, it, it can be a struggle even in a good venue to really, uh, get juries to award a—I a, feel like a good amount. And they, you know, they got to a, a great place in this case. What else did you do? You know, were you, were you all allowed to suggest a number? Did you do the one ad or per diem type stuff? Or or what else did you do to, to kind of help them get to a good number?
1: Yeah, we didn't really do that. What we did was went about a little different. They, I knew they would probably get up and say we were going to give a multiplier, and we didn't do that. So what we did was we broke it down into sections. We said the dog takes her down. He's got her by the arm, he, or he got, he's got her by the throat. She gets her left arm up. He rips at that until the meat rips away. Now she's down to two legs and an arm. She gets her right arm over. He's shaking and ripping at that. Finally, the meat and the nerves tear away from that. She's down to fighting the dog with two legs. He gets her leg, tears it to the bone, breaks her leg actually, gets into her Achilles tendon. Finally, that meat all tears away. She's on her back. The dog's 70 pounds. It's on top of her. Uh, somehow she got loose and slid into the foyer of Jean Styslov's house and kicked the door shut with her one good leg. And I said, look, when you guys walked in this courtroom to be picked, be on the jury. Yeah, and, and the judge said this is a dog attack case. You immediately looked at my table and you saw Stacy Finelli was alive. So you knew how the story ended before we started telling you the story. Stacy didn't know when she was laying outside the front door with the dog ripping at her, how the story was going to end for her. And she didn't have a moment of comfort until she got behind that door. So award an amount for that. Then award an amount before she gets into the arms of the ER doctors. They got to come get her. She's still bleeding to death. Her daughter's trying to hold pressure to keep an artery from bleeding out. You really don't have any sense of safety till you get to the ER. That's another section. So award something for that. You know, and then award something for what is left of me after I have all these surgeries? What will I look like to my husband, to my high school students? What is left of my life? You know? But hey, you know you're alive. You know you're still married. Award something for that. And then award something, knowing you've got to have two more. And that's the way we did it. And we just, you know, said, put numbers in that way. We didn't do the per hour, per minute, you know, other than to break it into those little sections.
2: So when you were breaking it into those sections, Matt, were you giving them specific numbers?
1: Yeah, I suggested, I forget what the numbers were, but I suggested, you know, two or three million per, you know, section.
3: That's, I mean it's a great idea and just hearing you describe it gave me the chills in the absolute worst way. I mean, just horrifying.
1: Well, it was terrifying. It was terrifying and yeah. you just people just don't understand looking back, you know, mad mal cases, you all do those all the time and the lawyers, uh, the lawyers are always saying, "Oh, you're talking about hindsight, hindsight." Well, we all tend to do that. But you got to start where you were at the time. And what did you know each moment going forward? Or am I going to live or die? And that was, I think the, the key to put it in perspective.
2: Yeah. And so it sounds like you uh, had a chance to talk to the jurors afterwards. Is that right? Ronnie, I think interviewed several. What, yeah. did, did they give you any feedback that you, uh, th- that would be helpful to share?
0: I mean, you know, the number could have very easily have been a lot bigger. There was several of them that said they wanted to give 20 million, and I think what ended up happening is there was probably a quotient verdict, um, yeah. is what they they did. So uh, very likely could have been a lot bigger um, than it was. They really thought that we had done a good job. At, you know, to the extent some, you know, it's uh, it's always hard to figure out exactly what they're they're thinking. We were only able to talk to a couple of them. But, uh, but yeah, that was the, the most striking thing to me was we were probably just a handful of jurors away from, you know, maybe getting a 15 or $20 million, you know, math closing really drove it home. And so it just about resulted in a 15 or $20 million verdict.
2: Yeah. So the, the I am curious, in, in, cause we haven't really talked much about the evidence, but they, they, as uh, Yvonne mentioned early on, they put 75% on the husband and 25% on, uh, on the wife uh, what was the reasoning for that or putting the majority on the husband? So it's an interesting issue. One of
1: the jurors indicated that they wanted to impose liability on the son and they knew the father had passed and they believed that they would be able to reach any inheritance by putting it on him I don't know if that was all the jurors mindset, but that was what one expressed that sentiment, which shows you how um how uh, dangerous it was if he'd have been in the case or we Ronnie had sued him and that sort of thing.
2: Right, right.
1: Yeah. Um
3: well and then we didn't talk about it, but um you got you also got the the separate phase for um 68 fees, which um you know aren't even though I guess at that point you've gotten a good verdict and maybe it felt a little bit like an afterthought, but those aren't easy to get and that's an accomplishment um in itself. Um, but what did y'all do for for that phase of the case? Did you um did one of you call the other? Did you have somebody else come in to talk about attorney's fees or
1: I'll let Ronnie talk to you about because he was the witness, but credit to Ronnie on that several years ago in a case he had a trial down in Gwinnett, he was As I recall, this is the first time I ever heard about it. He was the first lawyer really to read 60 AD closely and see that you call, uh, you get those damages assessed immediately with the same jury, which is separate and apart from the attorney's fee, you know, for the offer of settlement. And and now a lot of folks do that. But, uh, yeah, Ronnie, uh, kind of tell them how we went about it.
0: Yeah, so we just, you know, just as soon as we you came back and you you get that kind of result and you know that the jury's picking up what you're putting down, that you know that it's a good time to, to go ahead and move for that. And so it's really, you know, it's additional damages, some of which can be, you know, you can apply attorney's fees, but it's really additional damages for the frivolousness. And Matt had done such a good job with all those, like I said, the records and the cross exams that the jury was literally looking at this like, yeah, this is a frivolous defense, you know, so... Uh, they were ready and willing to do it, and uh, so Matt put me up. And uh, it's funny, you know. I wish you could have seen the cross that it, he did. And to be on the other end of Matt for cross is a very scary thing. But as an attorney, I was on direct. Hell, I was on his side, and I was nervous getting uh, <laughs> on direct
1: he was trying to work
0: with me. Uh, but uh, so anyway, he did that, and then the defense attorney tried to cross me to no avail. And and actually, you know, some of the things were that she tried to get me to admit. You know, she said, "Well, when you." you know, figured out that I might not have given you not, not have given you all the records. Why didn't you send a 6.4? Why didn't you file a motion to compel? And I said, well, ma'am, I, we ought not have to do that. I said, we're officers of the court, and uh, we ought to be able to do, the, you know, certain things a certain way, and I don't want to take up, the you know, the court's time and everybody's time, and the jurors were over there just shaking their head. I could see them out of the corner of my eye because they knew that their time had kind of been wasted with some of the stuff the other, other folks did. And then – so then they called the uh, – <laughs> attorney Christina Goulis and Matt crossed her and um, to say the least I mean it it didn't go very well for them at all and so she was actually apologizing on the stand and saying you know she was sorry don't blame the client actually did some things that probably should have a little improper and uh, and I think that kept the number down but then when the jury went back they um, they had a couple questions for the court and uh, well first of all this is a side note they had been out, I think, what, Matt, about 20 minutes, and the, they said the jury's got a question, and they, they came back, and said, so what's the question? They said, can we have a calculator? And so that, <laughs>
2: that, that's a good sign. I uh, <laughs> always know, love that question.
0: <laughs> yeah, so when they were back there considering the additional damages, they wanted to know how did that get divided up? Is it all attorney's fees, blah, blah, blah? And so if we could have laid out how it would have really worked for them, I think they would have dropped the hammer. That's what one of the jury said, I think – they gave the fifty thousand because they thought that's about what it cost us to try the case per hour or something like that. So had they known how it, if we could have really told them how it worked, I think they would have given the full forty percent. Which a lot of times they will when they hear that they'll say, "I don't want the I don't want this person to have to pay the forty percent of pay, mm-hmm. an additional forty percent for fees." But they were like, "Are y'all going to get a little bit? Of, are y'all going to get forty percent of all of it?" And so they were trying to calculate that.
1: So. Yeah, I've had two cases where I've caught people being dishonest and I just let them, give, you know, give them enough rope. And uh, their their response in their defense is Matt knew we were lying the whole time and didn't say anything. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's an right. interesting response. But, uh,
3: I, but I, I really do like what you said about because I have been – I have filed many motions for sanctions. I know Steve has had hearings on motions for really sanctionable conduct and ended up with, you know, very with nothing or issue preclusion sanctions that end up uh, being just a trouble to deal with at trial and don't have the teeth that you want them to have. And so I, I do think it's something sometimes you have to go down that route because now you have the records or you needed the records or whatever. So you couldn't hold, you couldn't keep it. You couldn't sit on it. But I, I, that is something to think about, about just not, you know, not filing that motion for sanctions that so many judges aren't going to give you what you want for. And then just letting a jury hear about it. Yeah, Gave me a lot to think about. I learned something on the podcast today.
2: (laughs) (laughs) uh one last question we we've been going uh for a while so we'll let you guys go soon uh did you do any focus groups or anything like that for this case i have i am yet to do one in my career
1: i know a lot of people do them and i've not um and so we didn't do that here i just I us talked to my kids around them crazy about right.
2: it <laughs> yeah yeah no, no, I mean, I, 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 I'm constantly doing the informal focus groups with my family and especially my wife and she's always good to, uh, call stuff out, you know, what's, what's good, what's bad and how, how, uh, juries are likely going to see it.
3: Yeah. It's more affordable.
2: <laughs> yes. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's right. Um, well, listen, uh, I, we really appreciate it. I want to remind everybody that we've been talking to Matt Cook and Ronnie Halsey, and um, and we have been talking about the case of Finelli versus uh, Stijsloff uh, that resulted in a uh, $5,670,000 verdict. Um, and if you want to look up Matt Cook, you can go to cook log, uh, cook-lawgroup.com uh, and look up Matt and his team. Or if you want to look up Ronnie Halsey, go to smith holseylaw.com That's uh Smith and then H U L S E Y. Um and uh, and Matt and Ronnie, is there anything else that you'd like our listeners to know that we haven't had a chance to discuss on the uh, on the podcast? I don't
1: oh, think so. I really appreciate the invite. It's flattering and uh, proud of the work that y'all do, both in your practice but on the podcast. I think it's important and you know always cool. something to learn. Mm-hmm.
2: Well, we appreciate it. And we we appreciate lawyers like yourselves who not only go out and try great cases and then but then are uh, uh, willing to share, um, you know, uh, how you try those cases and and, um, and and your thoughts on what works and what doesn't, because that's that's what we're trying to get out there. But um, <laughs> yeah, so. All right. Well, thank you so much, Matt and Ronnie. Good seeing you. And uh, and I think we'll close the podcast with that.